Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Pushkin. This is Solvable. I'm Jacob Weisberg. When you look at modern democracies across the globe, we rank always at the bottom. Currently, we're about 26 out of 32 in terms of turnout levels. Voting in America is optional. In 2016, over 82 million Americans of voting age did not vote. Each year, people cite a variety of reasons for choosing not to vote. But what about people who want to vote and can't? Homeless people, people who are transient and move around a great deal, people who may have been furloughed and lost their jobs and have been displaced. All of these people are American citizens who deserve the right to vote. There was a Supreme Court case that cut back on the protections of the Voting Rights Act. Are we feeling the effects of that now? Every single day. Voter suppression is an urgent problem. Between 2014 and 2016, over 16 million citizens were removed from state voter registration rolls. And in 2016 alone, nearly one million ballots cast were rejected. I don't understand why people aren't angrier. There's nothing more fundamental in a democracy than the right to vote. Marching for the streets is, is absolutely one powerful vehicle for reform. The other way that you can achieve meaningful reform is at the ballot box. Voter suppression is solvable. Kristen Clark is the president and executive director of the National Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. The committee was established in 1963 at the request of President John F. Kennedy to target, in particular, the inequities confronting African Americans and other minorities. Clark sees the disenfranchisement of millions of American voters as central to her work. Here's our conversation. Voter suppression is solvable. 
And we can do it by restoring the Voting Rights Act and resisting efforts made to deny people access to vote by mail in the midst of the pandemic. You know, I think our listeners have at least some familiarity with the old voter suppression, the Jim Crow era, poll taxes, literacy requirements, all those things that were supposed to be ended by the Voting Rights Act. But there's a new voter suppression that we're dealing with. How is it different from the old voter suppression? They're like cousins of the old tactics from the Jim Crow era. Uh, Long gone are the days of literacy tests and understanding clauses. And instead, what we see today are equally nefarious efforts to make it harder for vulnerable communities to vote. Polling place consolidations, uh, literally efforts to shut down the vast majority of polling sites in a community under the guise of wanting to save money or save expense, but in ways that will make it literally harder for people to vote on election day. We see purging of the voter registration rolls, and it'll be packaged as we're just cleaning up uh, the rolls. But often when you dig deep, what you find are efforts to remove African-American and Latinos from the registration rolls, people who are legitimately registered, who exercise that right and have every right to be there. So why do these kinds of procedural changes and rule changes disproportionately affect Black, Latino, and other minority voters? You know, our country has a long and sordid history of efforts to deny African-Americans access to the franchise. In 1965, on Bloody Sunday, when peaceful demonstrators, including John Lewis, were brutally assaulted while crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge in search of, in the quest for, the right to vote. Those horrible events gave rise to passage of the Voting Rights Act. Today, that racial history still looms heavy, and we continue to see states that have built into their DNA this desire, this unfortunate need to oppress Uh, People of color, African-Americans and Latinos are growing in number in many parts of the country. And there is a correlation. We often find that it is in those very communities where white people seek to maintain and preserve the status quo, um, seek to resist the change in demographic shifts that may be happening in their communities. So this ugly racial history is something that we have to confront, that we have to air out when we talk about voter suppression and when we talk about exactly why we need to restore the Voting Rights Act and have in place, once again, its full protections. So the Voting Rights Act passed in 1965 was supposed to prevent using those kinds of pretexts that have the effect of suppressing voting. Uh, there was a Supreme Court case, if I remember, maybe 10 years ago, that that cut back on the protections of the Voting Rights Act. Are we feeling the effects of that now? Every single day. That Supreme Court ruling, Shelby County, Alabama versus Holder, was issued in 2013 and has literally opened up the floodgates to voter suppression efforts all across the country. 
part of the act required that certain states with very long and egregious histories of voting discrimination get federal review of any new voting change before it could be put into effect. And that federal review process was about looking to see if it's a voting change that would make it harder for African-Americans, Latinos, or other protected communities of color to vote. And that Section 5 federal review process throughout the decades had done remarkable work in blocking literally hundreds of discriminatory voting changes from taking root. And it also had a powerful deterrent effect as well. The Supreme Court's decision basically brought that federal review process to a grinding halt. I'll give you an example. On the day that the Supreme Court issued its Shelby County decision, the state of Texas moved forward with a discriminatory photo ID law that had been blocked previously by this review process. It's a law that literally disenfranchised thousands of people who voted uh, year after year, but simply didn't have one of the strict, narrow categories of photo ID required by this law. If you have a, a passport or a driver's license, fine. A conceal and carry permit, fine. But under the initial iteration of the law, student ID didn't qualify. And the law also didn't think about the poorest of the poor in our country, people who don't fly, people who don't have driver's licenses because they rely on public transportation and so forth. And so it's it's been a very messy picture since that Supreme Court ruling. Um, that, that ruling one is, is one that absolutely has made it harder for people to have voice in our democracy. And Kristen, you haven't even mentioned COVID-19 yet. I mean, if in uh, normal times you would be dealing with all these reverses to voting rights, and now we have voting is dangerous, potentially physically dangerous in a way no one would have expected. What's the lawyers committee's approach to having a successful vote in November? Here's what we know, and here's what we're fighting for. States have to provide as many avenues as possible for people to have voice. They have to have a robust absentee voting system that is streamlined and easy for people to participate in, one in which we're providing postage paid envelopes and easing the deadlines for people to request the ballot and return the ballot. That's key. We also need to provide expanded early voting opportunities. Give people a period of two weeks to come out prior to Election Day to vote and make that period one that is open and accessible so that people can comply with social distancing guidelines and so forth. But we have to also prepare for in-person voting on Election Day. And what we've seen is that in some states where they reduced um, you know, 95% or more of polling sites, there have been really long lines because there are some people for whom the experience of turning out and voting in person is incredibly important to them. Wisconsin and Georgia have been two states where we've seen really significant problems this season. Wisconsin, particularly in Milwaukee, reduced 
upwards of about 180 polling sites to five, resulting in miserably long lines that stretched for hours on Election Day. And we saw a similar picture in Georgia. We're running out of time to get this right, but that three-part strategy we deem really critical to a successful election season in the midst of this pandemic. So, Kristen, let's break this solvable down a little bit. You mentioned these three aspects to it. First of all, you know, I think some people see mail-in voting, if you did it the right way, as a kind of panacea. Send everyone who's registered a ballot within a prepaid envelope. You know, absentee voting just has been a part of voting in our country for, for decades. It extends back to the 1800s. And it has been done in ways where we've not seen fraud. So these baseless sham claims that we have seen put forth by the president are frankly very hard to understand, given that he himself has voted absentee, um, his wife and daughter and many family members have voted absentee and, you know, um, have made our work a little bit harder because there's some officials who are kind of heeding his call and are throwing up unnecessary obstacles for for voters all the while as we continue to wrestle with this pandemic that is continuing to have such a devastating impact on the public. Why can't we just have mail voting for everybody? So in our experience Mail voting will not work for everybody. I'll give you an example. Utah went to an, a you know 100% vote by mail system a few years ago and didn't think about the unique needs of Navajo speaking voters in San Juan County, many of whom need oral language assistance in order to cast an effective ballot. San Juan County, we sued them and now they do provide in-person voting opportunities for Navajo-speaking voters and understand and appreciate that the law requires that they provide oral language assistance. We've also seen discrimination and voter suppression in some vote-by-mail systems. And this is an issue we're um, really paying close attention to now. I'll give you an example, an example from the 2018 midterm election cycle in Georgia. We were monitoring what was happening across the state very carefully and found that Gwinnett County was an outlier. They were rejecting absentee ballots at extraordinarily high rates. We went in and looked at the data and found that African-American and Asian-Americans were having their absentee ballots rejected at far greater rates than white voters. And we sued the county and found out that they were using things like this voter provided two digits of their uh, birth year and not four digits. They were looking at minutiae, really. And for all of those reasons, vote by mail may not work for everybody. There are some communities that just may not have faith in vote by mail and faith that their ballot will be counted. And so no matter what, they intend to go and vote in person on election day and, and, and feel more confident about showing up in person and voting. And then you also have homeless people and people who are transient and move around a great deal, particularly low income uh, people, people who may have been furloughed and lost their jobs and have had to move around a lot and have been displaced. 
all of these people are American citizens who deserve the right to vote. But I, I point out those examples just to make clear that vote by mail may not work for everyone, which is why providing these three avenues is really critical to getting it right in 2020. So tell me about early voting in person. That's the thing I know the least about. I've never done early in-person voting. I'm not even sure if we have that in New York where, where I live. How does, how does it work? Yeah, early voting um, opportunities sadly are not in place in every single state, but but they are in, in many. It's another chance to go and vote often at your local elections office or some designated site at periods of time before election day. It's helpful to people who may work on election day and may not have confidence that they can actually get off in time to vote. It's helpful for parents who may have childcare responsibilities that they can't maneuver around on election day or people who just know that they may not be home or in their jurisdiction on election day. So it's just yet another avenue that gives people a chance to, to turn out and vote. I'll tell you that in places like North Carolina, early voting has become incredibly popular um, and heavily promoted by churches, for example, that encourage soul to the polls, encouraging people to leave church on Sunday and go and early vote. So it, it is another way for people to have voice. And during the pandemic, especially important because it's helping to ease that strain and burden that officials will otherwise experience on that one election day. How will we judge, Kristen, if we've had a successful election or how will we judge how successful it's been on November 3rd? You know, sadly, we saw voter turnout levels drop in 2016. And in my view, we want a democracy in which we have high turnout, uh, high participation rates, high numbers of eligible people who are registered to vote. To me, the measure of success is getting those numbers up and doing all that we can to help people overcome the unnecessary barriers that we often throw up uh, that make it harder for people to vote. When you look at modern democracies across the globe, um, we rank always at the bottom. Currently, we're about 26 out of 32 in terms of turnout levels. And that's because we don't have things like same-day registration across the board. Uh, we don't make election day a holiday. We do things like purging the voter rolls, polling place consolidations, uh, failing to account for the very real impact that the pandemic is having on people's lives. So if, if we can take steps now to get our numbers up across the board, that to be will be one measure of success. We run a program uh, at the Lawyers Committee called Election Protection. Election Protection is the nation's largest and longest running nonpartisan voter protection program. It came about in the wake of Bush v. Gore when the American public just started to pay a lot more attention to the way in which our elections are run. And we thought it was really critical that we provided a nonpartisan place where people can report uh, issues, bring forth complaints. We hear from people in the hundreds of thousands who are uh, reporting complaints happening all across the country by way of our 866-Hour Vote hotline. And we've got a network of thousands of trained legal volunteers who help 
resolve those issues one by one. But sometimes we learn about issues that are, are truly breaks in the systems that require litigation. And so it's been a busy season for us in 2020, and we anticipate that it will remain busy until the bitter end. What can you do about that at the Lawyers Committee? If someone says, my polling place opened an hour late, it's an hour later, they can't go back in time. Do you, do you, is there some remedy for that? It's one of the most heartbreaking problems, frankly. Sometimes we will go to court and we will sue to get an extension of the polling hours as we did recently in Georgia. We saw an extension of the poll hours prove critical for voters in the Louisville area during their recent primary where they had one polling site for an entire county and uh, voters were driving up to that location, trying desperately to get into the parking lot before 6 p.m. and ended up finding a door shut in their face. Uh, But a a 30-minute extension was granted, allowing those people the opportunity to vote. So Um, We will fight tooth and nail for voters and do all that we can to make sure that if and when states get it wrong on the front end, that they're giving people that extra opportunity on the back end to come back out. The, The frustrating part is knowing that there's some people who only have one shot on election day. That person who may have, you know, paid bus fare to get to a polling site and won't have bus fare to come back again later in the day. That parent who may have arranged childcare to go vote and just won't be able to do it again later in the day. That person who talked to their boss and got time away from work to go vote, who won't be able to get that time off again. That part kills me, but we still do everything in our power to make sure that we let officials know we're watching and, and we expect them to get it right and that we're prepared to go to court to get people that extra time to see what we can do to level the playing field. Kristen, you're a lawyer. You keep a pretty cool head about this, but I don't r- understand why people aren't angrier. There's nothing more fundamental in a democracy than the right to vote. There are people actively and openly trying to take that vote away from people. I'm worried we're going to have a tremendous wave of anger on November 3rd and after as a result of people being disenfranchised in all the ways we've talked about. But we need the anger now. We need the anger now for sure. One place where we are seeing anger is in the streets. I am heartened by the ways in which we're seeing people embrace the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, really taking to the streets to channel anger about police injustice and racial injustice in our country. My hope is that in 2020, we will see people uh, channel that anger as well to the ballot box and that this will result in the higher turnout levels that we deserve. My hope is that for the people who are very incensed and enraged about police violence perpetrated against unarmed African-Americans in our country, will realize that marching for the streets is, is absolutely one powerful vehicle for reform. But 
the other way that you can achieve meaningful reform is at the ballot box. Your mayor is often the one who has the prerogative and the right to put in place a police chief. Your elected district attorney is the one who makes decisions about whether or not to prosecute an officer who used violence, who used force without basis. Your sheriff, a position that very few people pay attention to, is often an elected person who makes decisions about how the jails are run, how they're responding to the pandemic. So with some aggressive voter education work, I am hoping that a lot of the the angst that we are seeing in response to the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Rayshard Brooks and so many others will, will be energy that we see propel people to the ballot box this fall. Kristen, I wanted to ask you what brought you personally to the issue of voting rights and voter suppression. I know you have uh, you've had a long career in civil rights law and you worked in the New York State uh, Attorney General's office as head of the Civil Rights Division. Um, but why is this your issue personally? So I started off my career at the Justice Department. It was my first job out of law school, uh, working in the voting section of the Civil Rights Division, doing voting rights cases in the Deep South. And I can remember being in Louisiana, just outside Baton Rouge, and I was monitoring a school board election. Black voters had called the Justice Department to express concern um, about potential voter suppression. And I remember stepping outside the polling site at this local school and seeing all of these cars doing a U-turn and not coming to the polling place. And it was because a cop had set up a speed trap feet from the school. And this speed trap was absolutely having its intended effect of discouraging Black voters from going and voting. And, you know, I was able to use my power and position as a Justice Department attorney to call the local law enforcement office. And, and they got that, that cop removed. But remember thinking, my goodness, if voters didn't call us, if we didn't respond, if we weren't there, how many people would have been blocked from voting uh, that day? So, you know, doing this work throughout the years and, and just seeing the, the shenanigans, seeing the nefarious attempts, seeing these Jim Crow type tactics constantly rearing their head um, just makes clear this work is important. And indeed, elections in our country come down to razor thin margins. You know, our elections are are often hotly contested and every vote matters. And I'm a civil rights lawyer through and through, but I'm a a voting rights lawyer at my heart. And um, there sadly has never been a dull moment in the two decades during which I've been doing this work. What are a few things that listeners can do if they're concerned about having a fair and successful election in their local communities and if they're concerned, as we all should be, about having a fair and successful election throughout the country? So a few things. One, now is the time to get registered if you're not already or to just confirm your voter registration status. Sadly, 
you know, there are states that will move people on to the inactive list and you may not find out. So regardless of whether or not you think you're registered, now's the time to just get registered and to, or to check on your voter registration status. The second thing is we need more conversation to promote voter education in our communities and across the country. So open up conversations with um, folks you may go to school with, folks you may go to church with, folks at home, with family members about voting and why it's important. And it's, it's about far more than just what's at the top of the ballot. It's about far more than just the presidential seat. It's about connecting the right to vote up to the issues that you care about, that animate your life. Whether, again, it's criminal justice, fair housing, abortion, understanding and appreciating how the right to vote links up with issues that impact your day-to-day life are, are the kinds of conversations that we need more of. The third thing is make a plan. Make a plan now to vote. There's still primaries happening. There's still special elections that will happen between now and November. And then there's big general election on November 3rd. But now's the time to figure out, okay, what are the rules for voting absentee in my state if that's the way I want to vote? What's the deadline for uh, requesting an an absentee ballot if that's what I got to do? What's the deadline for returning it? When can I early vote? What are the hours for voting on election day itself? Where's my polling place going to be? What's going to be on the ballot? Are there a bunch of local races, state races, along with the congressional seats? Um, Are there ballot initiatives that I should read up on now so that I can understand them and be ready on election day? What about my grandmother um, who needs a ride to the polls? Now's the time to really think through all of those questions and just make a plan so that you are ready on November 3rd. And our election protection hotline, our 866 our vote hotline is one place that people can turn to if they need help with those kinds of questions. We we need to get this right in 2020. This is an election season like none other, and it's one in which we have to provide maximum opportunities and ways for people to have voice in our election. Kristen Clark, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. That was Kristen Clark, President and Executive Director of the National Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Remember to check out our show notes for links to the suggestions our guests make for ways that you can get involved. Solvable is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our show is produced by Camille Baptista, Senior Producer Jocelyn Frank. Catherine Girardot is our Managing Producer. And our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Special thanks to Heather Fain, Eric Sandler, Carly Migliori, and Khadija Holland. I'm Jacob Weisberg. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, 
you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventionalawards. See you there. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at chumpacasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists, like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Spentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.